We have a lovely gospel, lovely first reading. I thought, however, uh, in interest of time and, and uh, humidity, we'd, we'd focus on Ephesians 4. So the fourth, there aren't four books of Ephesians, so the one book of Ephesians, the fourth chapter, starting with the 30th verse. And there's really two sets of phrases there which we could usefully compare and contrast and use them, it seems to me, in our own lives. The charge is given, brothers and sisters, don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God with which you were sealed for the day of redemption. And then we see a warning, never more apt perhaps than today, although I imagine preachers in every century have said the same thing. But the advice is, put away all bitterness, all fury, all anger, all shouting, all reviling, they must be removed from you along with all malice. No advice could be better given. Because if you think of it, people going, to, uh, going home to their family or into work, there has to be a certain level of, as they used to say in the Senate once upon a time, comedy. I know you think I mean comedy, but I mean comedy with a T. It's really worthwhile getting the old Funkin' Wagnalls out for that one. And just to see that that's an important product for civilization to happen, for family to happen, for going to Thanksgiving dinner and not having it be jello wrestling, industrial strength jello wrestling instead. The matter of civilization has preconditions. You know, many people, many of us, for certain subjects, went to college too soon. Uh, we weren't ready with the questions, and therefore when they gave us the answers, we didn't even realize what they were answers to. And I suspect everybody's favorite one that they offer and mention how absurd it was, was conditions for the possibility of. One ran into it in philosophy. Wasn't that a grandiose and orotund and lengthy phrase, and whatever did that mean? But we can tell you now conditions that if they exist, you can't. There's the impossibility of family life, extended family life, civilization, culture, government, democracy. We always took it for granted we're Americans, we have democracy. Not quite anymore. Science. We used to have science, it used to be the different ways it gets arbitrated by people judging it in different fora. But then if simply people shout at one another without evidence, it's not clear that that's science. And medicine has taken a hit. Then there are people who upbraid us because here we are with a, not simply an epidemic, but a pandemic. And we're in a land that actually eliminated what it once had with people, you know, you see these old pictures of the streets empty and the male person, mailman with a, with a mask on and the signs on the, uh, all around about the epidemic, and we're able to eliminate smallpox and indeed polio. Surely you've seen the pictures of the people with rifles at the edge of towns checking buses to see if anybody had polio so that their kids would be safe. The matter of being concerned enough not to aid the virus, but to end it, and to be able to carry that out. And so we're told by Ephesians 4, be kind to one another, compassionate, forgiving one another, as God has forgiven you in Christ. And I think that's the situation we find ourselves in where we need that second verse. The first verse is to warn us 
about things which will make impossible and get rid of the condition of possibility for all the things we took for granted that we were bequeathed by our grandparents, our parents, great thinkers and workers before. And they were about to hatch and hatch it and uh, do in in anger because only I am right, no one else is. We have all met people who say, what I don't know isn't knowledge. And by the way, they don't know stuff. We've all met people who say everybody has a right to an opinion, forgetting that that means an informed opinion. We've all forgotten our responsibilities at one time or another. I think I'd be more popular if I were preaching in the following way. I'm gonna talk about other people who are wrong and all of us are right. <laughs> and they're wrong. And you know, the church did that in many ages. You remember Pope John XXIII trying to put together the council and one of the members of the Curia come up to him with condemnation of heresies and all these things, condemning everyone else as if they were perfection. And then when the council opened, they saw how much they had to discern and go ad fontes, as the Renaissance said, to the roots, to the sources, to figure out what the fathers taught and what scripture taught. And this isn't a church, when I was brought up, you were still warned against reading scripture, you might get the wrong idea. But the fonts of scripture and of the tradition and of the fathers of the church, for instance, the doctors of the church, to more profoundly understand what Catholicism, what Christianity was all about. And the bishops found themselves busy learning. And if we're open to that, we do too. We always speak about Ecclesia Docens, the church teaching. Vatican II reminded the bishops and all of us there's Ecclesia Dishens, the church learning. And so we can sometimes try to head sure of ourselves with bitterness, fury, anger, shouting, reviling, and God forbid, malice. You know, people actually suggest, I won't go into examples, I'll let you think of them, we can chat about them afterwards. But the importance of kindness, compassion, forgiving one another as the precondition of having safe and sane family life, extended family life, being able to get to Thanksgiving without blows and through it, the matter of office and home, the matter of culture and civilization, the matter of being able to do medicine, being able to do science, being able to have government, being able to have a democracy. We took those for granted because they were bequeathed as fully functioning. We're not quite so sure now when the smallest things leave us befuddled and more and more angry, we think we have the right mainly to be angry rather than to seek solutions and to bring peace and, and health to ourselves and to the world. Besides Ephesians 4, starting with the 30th verse, those two sections of comparison and contrast, they're very helpful for everyday life, it would seem to me today. I would recommend the example which we all admire of Solomon, who had the wit when he was asked what would he want, he had the wit to choose wisdom. He didn't ask, whatever I say is always going to be right. Don't we know people who would ask that? That's the opposite of the truth. One has to seek the truth, and the truth stands over us and judges us. Same thing, justice. Make sure that we control the courts. There are countries in Europe that got free from communist oppression and now have rigged the courts so they don't have democracy anymore. Some of them are famous, famous Catholic country we can all think of, infamous in the news, very sad. We have to pray for the restoration of democracy. You say it's so simple. Well, not quite when you have concerted efforts. But, but Solomon asked for wisdom. And Solomon had before him 
the case we all remember and that speaks for itself. It's the one of the two women and one baby. And both woman, women claimed the baby as if they were the mother. Each was the mother. And so Solomon in his wisdom said, the baby will be cut in two. And one of the women said, okay. And the other woman gave up her right to the baby, even though obviously, uh, obviously, self-evidently, you know how Ben Franklin modified Jefferson's writing of the Declaration of Independence. We hold these truths to be, he wrote, crossed it out and put self-evident. Anybody can figure this one out. We hold it to be self-evident that she's the mother even though she's giving up the baby. But there are people we know in our culture who don't get that, who don't get that and would take the other side. The things are not self-evident. And so we each have to help the other in not blowing out sparks, but letting the light of understanding and knowledge and counsel, all those gifts of the Holy Spirit, come into full, come into full flame. Ephesians, in what it warns us against, knows a bit what we are in terms of our sin. What it calls us to, our possibility. Reinhold Niebuhr, perhaps the greatest political theologian in the Christian church in the 20th century, had a marvelous line. Our, capa our capability for good makes democracy possible. Our capability for evil makes democracy necessary. In totalitarian lands, they fiddle democracy. They say, we're in power, we're always gonna stay in power, so we don't need democracy, we don't need that kind of stuff. But I hope we all know that that's wrong. Even if people are bitter, furious, anger, shouting, reviling, and full of malice, to end the end democracy would still be wrong. And so the other things that we carry with us in civilization, which we have to defend, to defend. There was a fellow from Boston, I think he's probably the most famous American, often called the first American, and we know he was bright because as soon as he could figure things out, he went to Philadelphia. His name was Ben Franklin. I rest my case. Talk about things being self-evident. Mother of mercy. But he was leaving, not, the, not, the, uh, not in 76, the Declaration, but he was leaving the Constitutional Convention, and he was some distance. An older woman came up to him and said, well, Mr. Franklin, what do we have? Meaning, do we have monarchy or democracy or what? Republic? And he said, you have a republic if you can keep it. We have the Christian life if we keep it, and yet we have a confessional and a reconciliation room saying all these things in us always need a little work. But we have, thank God, the Holy Spirit and the grace of God. Thanks for listening to Within the Walls of St. Paul's Sunday Homilies. Please consider supporting us by visiting stpaulparish.org. That's stpaulparish.org. God bless and see you next time.